Yes, like uh, Grace has said, my name is Boaz, and I'm not new here. Uh, actually, I've been coming quite, so thank you for loving me. I think the leadership maybe loves me. I'm not sure of the congregation, but at least the leadership seems to be, yeah, because they keep inviting, so that means that uh, they love me. So thank you so much, uh, Reverend Gerald and the team, uh, to do this together. So <clears throat> we are going to continue uh, with our series uh, that we have been going through uh, concerning growth and service, and that's what I'm doing even today. We continue with that, but now we are going to do it from Romans, looking at uh, the whole picture of God and how we can fit in that picture of God as people who are serving him. Uh, so I'm married to Christabel, Atheire, and Nathan. Uh, they have not come with me. But maybe next time, um, maybe they will come. Yes, I go, or oh, I fellowship from Ebenezer Chapel, but also I serve with Living Word Uganda. Actually, I've forgotten my books, Reverend. Help me. So I also serve with Living Word Uganda, and what we do as Living Word Uganda, we help uh, people to teach the Bible well and teach it faithfully. So one way we do it is also to uh, distribute books, uh, very subsidized books, so we have brought a few of them that if you have less than 10,000 or 10,000, you can take a copy of books. There are many. So we have like this one. We recite the Apostles' Creed every time. What does it mean? This one is written by Al Mora. If you know him, you can uh, have this book. It's about the Apostles' Creed and what it means and how uh, you can apply it. If you have a desire to know the book of Colossians very well, uh, this is a book I would recommend. It's a, a study from the book of Colossians. It's really, really good. Uh, I would recommend it. If you're one who wants to know the doctrine of the word of God, uh, this is written by Kevin DeYoung. In case yeah, you know the author, you can take this book, uh, Taking God at His Word. It's really the doctrine of the word of God. What do you want to know about the word of God? Its authority, its necessity, all is here. So many others are outside. Uh, you'll see the lady uh, in a red shirt. Then she'll be able, t-shirt, she'll be able to give you those books after. Okay, that's enough about books. So like I said, we need to reflect on growth and service united together. So I suggest that we all know that all life should praise and worship God for the public display of his goodness. I think all of us as Christians should know that we should praise God and worship him for his public display of goodness and particularly his goodness revealed in his will. Now, by the time we come to Romans chapter 11 verse 33 to 36, of course Paul has traveled a journey that has shown believers and all the world how sinful we are, how really the universe is bad, and he has tried to expound that from chapter 1 up to chapter 3, verse 19 in the book of Romans. But also he doesn't stop there, showing us the work that God is doing among sinners, and he has labored also to show us the great work of Jesus Christ at the cross by providing him as our righteousness, but also as our sacrifice that would be justified by faith. By faith. And he has done that in verses 20 and 21 of Romans chapter 3. Now, again, 
he continues to show us the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to conquer sin and to make us secure in the love of Jesus Christ. And he gives that three chapters, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8 of the book of Romans. Now, by the time we go to chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul is showing and really proving and defending the, the sovereignty of God or God's sovereign grace and promise-keeping faithfulness to the Jews but also to the whole world. And Paul is showing that the plan of God was that the whole world will come to know him, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So by the time of chapter 11, verse 32, where we read, God has consigned all to disobedience that, we may have mercy, that he may have mercy on all. Paul has given a comprehensive, really, account of the gospel. Now, we all need to understand the God of Romans. The God who shows us how bad we are, the God who is merciful to give us Christ, and the God who shows that everyone is to come in. Romans is the book we need. Like we need any other book of the Bible, yes, but then Romans surpasses for me the, the books of the Bible because it gives the mind of God regarding the gospel. Now, after Paul has expounded the mind of Christ, you may think that he has really given what is best he stops, and I think there's a time when analysis and argument should give way to adoration. So by the time we come to verse 33, Paul has stopped arguing and analyzing the will of God as we know it in Romans, and he bursts in praise. And Paul is a Bible man. He bursts in praise using the Old Testament scriptures. Now, chapter 11, verse 33 to 36. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to preach it actually the other way around. I'll begin from 36, and then I'll end with verse 33, and then I'll go to chapter 12. What I want you to see here is that God is to be praised by everyone for the public display of his good will. That's the first thing I want you to see, that God is to be praised for the public display of his good will. Now, look at verse 36. Paul says, all things are from him and are through him. All things are from God and are through him, meaning the earth is the Lord's and everything thereof. There's nothing we see that is not created by God. God is the creator, but he's not only the creator. God is the ultimate decisive controller of everything that happens on the earth. That there's nothing that happens on this earth without the permission or the ordaining of God. God is the source of all things. And that should lead us to praise him. Like I'm going to conclude with a shout of praise because if God is the creator of all things and he is the ultimate 
decisive of everything that happens, then how much should we praise this God? But then, Paul says all things are from him, and he has implications for that. And the first implication is, all things are from God, therefore, no one can give a gift to God as to make him a debtor. So you'll see that in verse 30, 35, that no one can repay God. There are no transactions with God. So the common language of, I did that so that you could do this for me, is fallen to the Bible. We don't do things so that God can do things for us. We cannot make God a debtor. Because all things are from him and are through him. So you cannot say you manipulate him with your money, with your words, with your deeds. So all things are from God, so you cannot give anything, any gift to God to make him a debtor. But that's not the only thing. All things are from God, therefore no one can give him any counsel. No one can give counsel to God about how he should do things, verse 34. So all things are from him. Yet Christians, us and many other sinners in the world, we sit on the judgment seat every day that passes by and we give counsel to the Lord. Have we had people who say that that child shouldn't have died? Maybe we even call it untimely death. We need to edit our language towards God. You have heard people who say that why didn't God do that? Who are you, man, to give God counsel? Especially when we are squeezed in suffering, we know how to tell God what to do. But look at this. His ways and judgments are unsearchable. Verse 33. All things are from God. Don't give him a gift to make him a debtor. All things are from God. Don't counsel God in what he does. Which is why his ways are above our ways. The things God is doing, we cannot tell all. The decisions of God and his way Sometimes they are unknowable, incomprehensible by human minds. Now, this doesn't mean that we cannot know anything about God at all. I think there are things we can know about God. How? Because Paul himself has argued in 11 chapters that we can know things about God and can know God through creation. We can know God through his providences, the things he does. We can know God through his word, for sure. And finally, we can know God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is not saying that we cannot, completely, we cannot know God completely, but then we should not presume that we know how he does all his things because we are not God. We are human beings and we have finite minds. So all things are from God, No one can give a gift to God. All things are from God. No one can give counsel to the Lord. 
His judgments and his ways are unsearchable. That's the mind that Paul comes with to show us. Then, therefore, back to verse 36. What are we to do then? Verse 36. We should give glory to God. Believers should praise the Lord. All things are from him and through him and to him. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul bursts in praise that this God, above sovereign in his grace and purposes, is to be praised by all. He's not to be manipulated. He is to be proclaimed and given glory by all the peoples because he is the source of everything and he is the controller of everything. Do you have this kind of God? Or your God is the God that you appease with a few deeds that you do? Christianity is so different. Our God is not appeased by the deeds. Actually, God does things for Christians. He saves us. That's what Romans is saying, that we are utterly lost. But then the Lord came in Jesus Christ and saved us. This is our God. Therefore, the response to us as Christians is to give him all the glory. To be content that the work of Christ is enough and exalt him in happiness. Now, the question then is, how do we practically give God the glory? We hear you, Paul, what you're saying, that we should give God the glory because he is the creator and the ultimate control of everything. But the question still remains, how do we do that? What are the practical ways of glorifying this God? And Paul doesn't leave us in silence. He wants us to see how humanity can praise and worship this God for his good will. Now, as we transition, Paul moves away from this doxology, the praise of God for who he is, and now he goes to human beings on how they should actually now glorify him or give him praise. And the word Paul uses here is the word worship. But before the word worship, look at how Paul now begins to illustrate what he has been saying all along. Verse, chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. So the question of how should I now worship or glorify God? I'm going to give you four things on how now you should now return praise to God. Number one, worship God in the view of his mercy. A mercy-shaped life. Worship God in the view of his mercy. So now, the overaching purpose or lesson of Romans chapter 1 to 11 is that God has treated us believers better. He has done us so well, and he continues to do so well for us. He has done us well. We don't deserve anything. And he has showed us that he loved us, and he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. So God has treated us more better. He has saved us graciously. 
And you see, this language of Paul comes from the Old Testament because he wants us to understand that the redeemed people, how God redeems Israel, is the same way he redeems even people today. So God redeems his people so that they can worship him. You remember in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, he talks about how he is the Lord their God who redeemed them therefore, and then he gives them the commandments on how to worship him. So that means Israel did not worship its way out of Egypt, but God actually acted in history and delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. Therefore, they are to worship him. Therefore, all Christian engagement or living should display God's mercy in our lifestyle. So if we received mercy, then we ought to extend the same mercy as we received from the Lord. So how do we worship then? We worship in view of God's mercy. Not in anything in, our, in ourselves, but we worship in view of the God who has redeemed us and we worship according to his mercy or the mercy that he has given to us. He has treated us better than we should treat others better. He has treated us well than we should treat all others well. He has forgiven us then we should ought to forgive others as well. So God's mercy is the basis of our worship of him. So worship God in the view of his mercy. The second thing you see when you continue verse 1 of chapter 12, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The second point then is how do we worship the Lord? All life is to worship God. All life is to worship God. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. The word worship is the one of the most common words used in the Christian circles today. We invite people to worship services. We invite people for worship experience. It's a word on the tongue of every Christian. I want to worship the Lord. And we use it, rightly so, maybe, really to refer to an event or time. You have seen posters everywhere in the city. Come and experience the worship. Come and experience evening worship. Many things, everything now, event-wise, is counted as worship. But if you don't use the word worship like that, the word has also been limited to music. For example, you could say that the quick songs are praise. Then the slow songs are worship songs. We have limited the word worship to music. But also, again, we have limited this word to Sunday service. So come for a worship service. Sunday morning, how many worship services do you have? We have four worship services. That's how we use the word. But then what is in Paul's mind when he uses the word worship in this place? Paul uses the Old Testament language to help us understand what he's trying to convey. Moses, at the command of God, told Pharaoh, let my people go and worship me. God delivered Israel so that they can worship him. And Paul, again, he's a Bible man. He uses the Old Testament. And in expounding what worship means, we see that God continues to tell Israel, don't offer yourselves to other gods. So how do you worship? Don't offer yourselves to other gods. Then again, on the Mount Sinai, now God makes it clear, you shall worship no other god but me. So it's a word 
that is used also in the Old Testament, and we see that this word is used here to show that God calls Israel to treasure, cherish, love, and devote their lives to him alone. Worship is used for Israel to show a life devoted to God. So worship is not limited to any event, but actually worship used in the Old Testament and the New Testament language is devotion to one true God. You love him, you cherish him, you treasure him as the ultimate being that actually deserves everything of ourselves. But Paul doesn't use only the word worship in describing our life devoted to God. He also uses the word sacrifice. And we see that the word sacrifice here, again, is a New Testament term. We know that sacrifices were dead in the Old Testament. But Paul uses living sacrifices, meaning you as a whole person, you ought to be a sacrifice. You as a whole, devote yourselves wholly to God. But also what you have to remember about the sacrifice is that these sacrifices were to be inspected and they had to be blameless. Because they are to be inspected by the priest, and before they are given for sacrifice, they have to be blameless. It was inspected for acceptance. Now, God has done that in Christ Jesus for all believers. He has inspected and died for us, and now he has presented us. Now Paul is saying, now as a blameless whole being... Be a sacrifice to God. In other words, worship him the whole of you. Therefore, like how a blameless accepted sacrifice brought the pleasing aroma to the Lord, therefore believers ought to live their lives devoted to God so that they can be the pleasing aroma to the, to the Lord. So let's tie the notes then. What is Paul saying? He's saying, you as a whole person... Be a pleasing aroma to the Lord in everything, and that is the acceptable worship. So the things you engage in, the thoughts that you have, everything should be pleasing to the Lord. Offer yourselves as living sacrifices, and that's worship. So all life is worship. All Christian engagement, all believers' thinking, attitude, everything is Worship. Offer yourselves or present yourselves as living sacrifices. Then we go to verse 2, which takes us to the third point. Worship controlled by the renewed mind. So the first thing, worship God in the view of his mercy. Secondly, all life is worship. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now number three, worship controlled by the renewed mind mind. How would I rephrase what Paul is saying in verse 2? He says, offer your bodies being transformed by the newness of the gospel. Offer yourselves with the new mind. That the transformed mind will lead your body to godliness. Paul is not simply referring to logic here, meaning simply the mind. He's talking about the control center of the whole human personality. He's talking about thinking. He's talking about the affectiveness, your loves, the delights, the emotions, and all. And he's talking about the volition, your will. 
So he's talking about the whole person. So the will, the mind, and the, the affectiveness of the human soul, they are all inseparable. We have, they are all, you are one person. So all this is to worship the Lord. So the renewed mind influences everything. And when you read Ephesians, you see that Paul talks about our will is dead, our mind is dead, and our bodies follow that trend. But when God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised us with Jesus Christ, therefore our will, our mind, and everything of ours is renewed. So what Paul is saying, worship the Lord with a renewed mind, he's saying, worship the Lord with the gospel you, or the Christian you. So worship the Lord as a changed believer. The renewed mind that, do not, that does not conform to the standards of the world. So we need a renewed mind, the gospel-shaped mind, the gospel-shaped everything. That the changed individual, because he has heard the gospel and embraced the gospel, does not swim like the world does, but now actually the changed individual is transformed. He does not conform to the standards of the world. So you go against the tide. When the world is driving in this direction, then for you driving in this direction. And that's what Paul is saying, conveying, worship God with a renewed mind. Lastly, is proving the goodness of God. So worship God in proving the goodness of his will. And you see that in the last verse and at the end, that, you, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, this can be very difficult to translate, but Paul is not saying that, he's not saying that test and then you'll try and see that things are good. He gives only one option. He's saying, by testing, you will see that things are good. So like the psalmist says in Psalm 34, test and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't give options that when you test, you'll determine, ah, this is good, or no, this is not very good as I thought, no. Okay. No, he's saying when you test, the outcome is good. Because that's the perfect will of God. For example, what am I saying? We know what is God's mind on sex, for example. What is it? A man and a woman in a covenant union. Now, by living like this, you'll prove that actually God's will is perfect and acceptable. This will of God is sweet. Contrary to that is destruction. So test and proof is if God's mind on sex is a man and a woman in a covenant union, contrary to that is unacceptable to the Lord. And that's not the good will. Maybe another example, we know God's mind on coveting. He says, do not be greedy towards people's stuff. Now, by not doing that and practicing a life that is content, then you will see that the will of God is good. Otherwise, thieves and those who covet 
are not in the perfect will of God. So test and see the will that is acceptable, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the will of God, the revealed will of God, the word of God that we have will show us the will of God. The moment we test and live by that will, it is perfect, it is good for us. And that's what Paul is conveying. So then, kind of repetition, worship God by the mercies he has given to us. Secondly, we worship the Lord by testing or proving his will. We worship the Lord um, by all worship, all life, but also worship the Lord with controlled mind. Now, how does this tie, as I come to an end, to our main theme of unity and service? Because it is important that people who are prepared now to serve, now it's been a year from the book of Ephesians, now here, really think about unity and service and growth. I hope that everything has been adding up together to see that now you know where you're to serve better, now you know how you're to serve better. Now you know the motives in which you're to bring in service. Now you know how you're not supposed to disorganize the church causing disunity. Now you know the mind of God concerning the ability to serve, the spiritual gifts and all that. So how does this passage actually tie into that? I will end with six questions. You can imagine that you preach and end with questions, right? How can that be? But these are reflective questions. How does this tie together? Number one, are you happy that in your service you're not being recognized at all, but Christ is being magnified? Now, I want you to think about it. Let's not rush. When you serve, are you happy that no one says thank you? As long as you're serving. That kind of approach shows that all things are from God and are to him. We are not to be recognized for our service, however much that can be good to help our souls. But then we should be much focused that Christ is being magnified in our service rather than us being recognized. And that's question number one. Are you happy that in your service you are not being recognized at all, but Christ is being magnified? Second question. Again, reflectively, let's think about this. Are you utterly depending on God for ministry? Two weeks ago, I think, Reverend Gerald was teaching about gifts, particularly prophecy, and all that. But are you happy? Actually, are you utterly depending on God for ministry? Now, don't confuse this. You can be gifted. And giftings usually overshadow God. So do you depend on God? Maybe you ask, how do I depend on God? Prayer. You actually read the Bible to see that actually I'm depending on God in all things, in your ministry. The ministry that depends on God is the one that is happy 
and it's the one that actually gives God glory, and it shows a life of worship. Question three, does your life and ministry show mercy, or is your life and ministry permeated by mercy? Really to find that you're a merciful person. You sing, you serve, you do things because you're extending mercy. Is your ministry a merciful ministry? Number four. Is all your life and ministry shaped by the gospel? And what I mean here is in conviction and in expression of the gospel. Now, the Christian jargon is the word gospel. The Christian jargon is the word, the Bible. Those are now popular words as well, like the word worship. What I mean is that in your conviction, do all your decisions actually reflect on the gospel, and do all your expression reflect on the gospel? Because it's important that our ministry is shaped by the gospel. The word of God gives us rule and practice. Like, the question is, what does the word of God say about this? Not what you experienced yesterday, please no. Or anything that you feel, no. The question is, what does the word of God say? And there you're starting to go close to the gospel in ministry. Number five, is your day-to-day job a reflection of worship all through? Can through your engagement at the workplace, people tell that you're saved? Don't say you're a Christian, but through your engagement, people can say, this man, this woman is a Christian. Because if worship is all life, then we should reflect deeply about this thing we call Christianity. So are you worshiping the Lord is the question. And I'm not asking whether you're going to sing. No, I'm asking, are you worshiping the Lord truly? So that's the question. Lastly, have you tested the will of God. And can you truly say it is sweet? Have you tested? I end by saying, test and see the Lord is good. We thank you that Lord you're good. Help us to test and feel and test and like this goodness. Show us your word clearly so that we will praise your name. All our life, all the things we do, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.